Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to the book of Daniel. Thrilled to start this book. Daniel is a dazzling book. Daniel is a dazzling book, so much so that there are people who know much of the content of Daniel, at least the first half, uh, who aren't even Christians. Some of the stories are so iconic, so memorable. Daniel has so much to teach us uh, about God, about ourselves, and about the world that is constantly trying to co-opt us for its purposes and asks us the question, how do we stand firm? The text has already been read, so I don't need to read it, but before we get into walking through it together this morning, we need to get our bearings biblically and just answer some basic questions about the book, starting with just the author, Daniel. Certainly nowhere does it say Daniel wrote the book of Daniel explicitly, and yet many of the I statements that come later in the book in the visions lead people to conclude that Daniel is the author of Daniel, used speaking in the first person, or at least, at the very least, the voice behind the pen under the sovereignty of God. As far as its position in the Bible goes, uh, Daniel is, is he's referred to as a prophet by Jesus, that's true, but Daniel is actually part of the writings, the Ketuvim, and not the prophets, the Navim, in the Jewish breakdown of things. Uh, and that has to do with kind of the nature of his visions that seem to be understood in the Jewish community, more something like uh, inspired, something closer to inspired writing, holy writing, a holy vision than actual prophecy. Uh, it's not actually clear to me. I read that multiple times when I was trying to figure this out. It wasn't entirely clear. But nevertheless, Daniel belongs to the writings, and certainly it tells an incredible story. You might say that Daniel could be split into two halves. And if you read through the book of Daniel, you will no doubt uh, be able to split those in half fairly easily, one through six. I, I think I said this when we were talking about the restrainer in Second Thessalonians. One through six is narrative. Seven through 12 uh, is very challenging, is, is very confusing. And you might split it in half that way. Although, let me just say this, it's true, that's true in one sense, but that might be a superficial way to break it down. And here's why. There's something in the original languages that is very, very interesting in the book of Daniel that you would not notice reading the English. And that is this. Chapter 1 is in Hebrew. But chapter 2, starting in verse 4, through the end of chapter 7 is all in Aramaic. And then in chapter 8, it switches back to Hebrew to finish out the book. Why on earth are there two languages at all? Why would the author choose to do it like that? Why is chapter 7, the first of the prophecy, included in largely the narratival Hebrew section? Why is there that overlap? Why is the first chapter set off in Hebrew? I pose these questions only to say at this point that perhaps thinking about Daniel structurally as just two halves, while it's true, there are kind of two halves, and you can cut it up that way, the narrative and the prophetic, that perhaps that is an overly simplified way to look at the, look at the book. And uh, whatever further conclusions we'll draw about that, we'll, we'll need to wait until we get towards chapter 7. I'm going to say. But certainly, whatever you think, chapter 1 is set off from the Aramaic that comes next as an introduction uh, to the book. 
Um, Daniel begins shortly after the first of three attacks on Jerusalem. We heard this, heard about this in the reading. 605, 597, and then 586, 87, which is the total sacking of Jerusalem, after which the southern kingdom is no more. And in this attack, King Jehoiakim in his third year on the throne, that's indicated by verses 1 and 2, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Immediately here, in the first two verses, we, two, we see two very important themes that it's worth calling a timeout and examining together. One is for the book of Daniel, and one is for the unfolding story of Scripture more generally. The first thing I want to point out is the dual history that Daniel will provide as we go through the book. What do I mean by dual history? I mean Daniel was going to provide a history that is that flows uh, that flows from an understanding of things from the ordinary eye, you might say, or maybe the secular eye, you might say. But then he's also going to give a behind the veil reading of things, and he's going to give a deeper story about what is going on behind all appearances. In verse one and two, we see a perfect example: Nebuchadnezzar truly came up against. Jerusalem and truly took Jehoiakim into captivity, but it gives the, right next to it the behind the veil reason this happened. The Lord, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Okay? It's explaining the why of the history. It's giving a divine, it's, it's giving a backstory that, we, that someone just observing history would otherwise not know. This is just another king getting captured by a king. Who cares? Daniel was very quick to clarify it matters. And why is that? It matters because this was not some random victory. This was calculated. It was orchestrated by God in judgment of his own people, who despite prophetic attempt, after prophetic attempt, after prophetic attempt, largely abandoned him in their, unfaithful, uh, in their unfaithfulness. And their faithlessness, you might say. And so what happens here, he makes clear, is not a randomly lost battle. It is God judging his people. Nebuchadnezzar did this, yes, but you know why that whole endeavor was successful? When, when, when other such things in the past were not, well, it was because God gave him into his hands. And don't miss this, because there's a beautiful, there's a whisper of something wonderful here. There is a whisper of something wonderful. And here it is. The, the humility of the Lord here is truly breathtaking. At that time in the ancient Near East, to successfully come against a people, take them away, and then take the things out of their God's temple and bring them back to your own setup was like game, set, match. That God, whoever it is that just got conquered, was powerless to deliver these losers, and that means that God's a loser too. God no doubt knew that in giving up this king and his people, he was about to hear the chants of praise Marduk from whom all blessings flow. And yet, and here's the whisper, we, we see a God even here who is willing to suffer shame 
in order to bring about a righteous judgment that will ultimately work for the good of his people. We see a God humble enough to suffer shame in order to bring about righteous judgment to ultimately work for the good of his people. And that theme might sound familiar to New Testament ears. That's the first thing, dual history. You see that in the first two verses. That will be an abiding theme throughout Daniel. The second thing we see is a continuation of a theme that starts at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3 and runs to the very end, and that is opposition to God. We have the fall. Uh, Then we have the promise that there would be a seed who would crush the head of the serpent who had thrown mankind into sin by deception. You have the ultimate God opposer set against the ultimate victor. And this abiding tension between God and what he commands and man who wants to oppose God gets this incredibly unique expression in Genesis chapter 11. Right before God switches from commanding obedience to announcing and promising that he's going to get it done through a guy named Abram, later named Abraham. In Genesis 11, you may recall, we find the people, instead of spreading throughout the face of the earth, they are all huddled together seeking to build up this tower. A tower up to the sky to try to reach the heavens. The Tower of Babel. It's a strange look at first glance, but what it really is is self-exalting disobedience to God. And where do we find this rebellion happening? Very interestingly, Now, the whole earth had one language, Genesis 11, 1 and 2, and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And that is where they built the tower of Babel. Now, I want you to notice in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, Daniel does not say, even though it certainly is true, that they took the vessels of the God and all the people to Babylon. That's what it says. Read it with me. Gave Jehoiakim, chapter 2, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. He brought them to the land of Shinar. He brought them back to Babylon clarifies they went to a place where God was not honored, where man is exalted, and a pseudo-kingdom opposes God. That is, after all, appropriate for what they have done. And further, this great city Babylon, set against here and many other places, Jerusalem, the great city of God, we see this picture. And if we fast forward as we will throughout this series, to the book of Revelation, we'll see something. Babylon and Jerusalem don't go away. Babylon and Jerusalem play a meaningful role in the story. And as you listen to the story, Babylon, unlike what we see here, Babylon will ultimately be defeated, and Jerusalem will win the day. Jerusalem wins. It's another whisper, all made possible by a king who is coming to bring a kingdom about which the book of Daniel will wonderfully describe. And so in the first two verses, we get one of the main themes of the book of Daniel so eloquently described in the first four verses of Psalm 137. 
This is the question that Daniel 1 calls us to ask. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land if we are sojourners and strangers ourselves? We belong to a far country. Daniel is going to ask us to ask ourselves the question. Call us to ask ourselves the question, excuse me. How do we sing the songs of Zion in a far country? And that is the matter to which we now turn. So, after the successful attack on Jerusalem, taking away the holy vessels in accordance with the prophecy of Isaiah 39, which I didn't get to read, I had to pick and choose, Nebuchadnezzar begins to show his tact and his cunning as a ruler. And to be very clear, despite his wickedness, he was an incredible ruler. He was an incredible ruler. Babylonia was an absolutely enormous and powerful empire. But because of his cunning, he realizes that there's nothing quite like having native people being the face of your empire to the natives you have captive, you have captured, excuse me, and that you have taken captive. And so what he does here, he's concerned with getting the best and the brightest to be trained up in the Babylonian ways, and thus the plan for Babylon University is hatched. And so first, he sends out his recruiter to get some students. That's what he says. The king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal people and the nobility, used without blemish and of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, to be clear, Nebuchadnezzar is explicitly profiling admissions here. Explicitly. To put it very bluntly, <clears throat> he, is, he is not after... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. He is not after scrubs. He is not after lower class. He is after the Jewish cream of the crop. Both in appearance and intellect. He's very specific about this to train up in the literature and the theology of Babylonia. Babylon be the biggest city in there. And when they came, he gave them palace food. Food and drink from the king's table. Not meager rations, okay? And as they received these sumptuous accommodations, they would embark on a three-year program there in Babylon. And among these folks that are taken... Our, our, our eyes are drawn to four particular individuals. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But as we'll see, regrettably, as a part of the, the, you know, the onboarding process there at Babylon U, they didn't get to keep their names. In fact, they were given new names, each of them, that incorporated the names of Babylonian gods. So let's pause briefly and look at the education strategy here. What's the education philosophy of Nebuchadnezzar, Chancellor of Babylon U? The first is to isolate. 
The first was to isolate. They weren't offering hybrid classes or distance learning modules. Instead, what they did is they took the people away from their land, away from their literature, away from their temple, away from their own people. And don't get me wrong, a bunch of them were taken with uh, them eventually. But still, they were taken away from the, their land and, 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 all, and a part of their people remained. Because that is how you get people to adopt a new culture and a new language or whatever immersion. Immersion. Anyone who has learned a new language and has studied abroad or something, that's the whole point of immersion. You go, like, you can't speak any English. You go live in a different country where you got the culture and the language, and that's it. You're going to sink or swim. you got to figure it out. Immersion. You isolate them from something else, introduce something new where that's the only thing. They're going to live and breathe the literature and philosophy and theology of Babylonia. Isolate. The second indoctrinate. Forget the Torah. Forget the Torah. These folks are going to learn all of the literature of Babylon. Their creation myths, their philosophies, their theologies. They're going to be leading the charge of assimilation here. Slowly helping the Jewish people forget who they are. Because their God had obviously forgotten them. Or so it would seem. The next thing he does is he softens them up. One commentator sums it up so well that I can do no better than just to repeat it. Listen to what he says about these accommodations. Somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price and that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and a position in society are usually a sufficient bid for a soul. They got their food, they wine. Later we're going to learn that Daniel's got a nice house with his friends. You get them used to this lifestyle, they won't ever want to leave. Let this become their new normal. Never want to go back to Judah. Finally, redefine. Redefine. You recall they have these new names given. These aren't, again, like nicknames at summer camp. These are explicit efforts to give them new identities. To redefine who they are in light of another God. So that every time they hear their name, they remember where they belong. Right here. Right here in Babylon. Belteshazzar. Right here in Babylon. In this nice house we have for you, Belteshazzar. That's the setup. That's the setup. School is in session. And immediately, things get very, very interesting. In verse 8, we read this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, why does Daniel think that the, the king's food would defile? It actually is not entirely clear. Some people suggest that the meat that might have been offered was unclean meat that Jews couldn't eat. But that doesn't exactly explain why he rejects the wine. Other people say, no, no, for that reason, uh, he thought maybe these things would have been offered in sacrifice. But he's going to go on to ask for vegetables, and there's no reason to believe that those weren't included as part of the agricultural cult there in in Babylon. Still others say, well, no, it 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 would represent some kind of dependence on Babylon if he were to take these things. 
But push back to that is, well, anything he's going to eat in Babylon is going to be dependent on Babylon and the king, obviously, including the vegetables. The truth is, we don't know precisely, okay? It may be best to conclude that Daniel had to pick a concrete place to draw a line, and this was one of them. And this was one of them. He, he didn't want to get swallowed up by Babylon. This was a concrete opportunity to draw a line. One theologian says, perhaps Daniel said, there's a real danger here. I could get sucked up into this and neutered by it all. He recognized that if Babylon gets into you, the show is over. And he's right. That's exactly what, was, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do. And so for whatever precise reason, he says, I'm, not, I'm going to reject this. He's got enough wisdom to understand the potential crisis here. It's not going to be like these crazy crises that show up a couple, you know, uh, later in the book where it's like, oh my goodness, a lion's den and a fiery... Fire. But there is something here that doesn't scream out, but this is extremely important for setting the trajectory of Daniel. This move right here. Drawing this line. Standing bold in this particular way. And so he asks the chief eunuch permission not to eat the food and wine, to take a significant detour in the assimilation process. What do we see? What do we see? And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in sight of the chief eunuch. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigns your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. This divine favor given before the no may suggest that what was being communicated is they were asking something that was like a little over his head. Maybe it's a little bit over the pay grade, but if they were to repackage it Differently, he could play He could play ball. But why precisely does he object? Again, it's very clear. Because the short answer is because air doesn't have calories. That's why. Because when the king comes in to take a look at his stock, and everyone else is fat and well-fed, Daniel, and y'all look like you've been doing Weight Watchers, and I tell him that I approve the, the air and water meal plan you're suggesting, I'll be done. So, Dan, I like you, man. I really do. But I also like my head being attached to my shoulders. And if I prove this, I give a thumbs up on this, my head may leave my shoulders. And so this is going to be a no-go. No-go on the meal plan proposal effort one. And instead of getting all bent out of shape and boohooing about the heavy-handedness of Babylon, you know what Daniel does? He just positions another solution. Sometimes you can just do that. Okay, what, what about this? That's what he says. And on round two, the chief eunuch is going to say yes. He's going to say yes. And Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs has assigned over them, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance, uh, let our appearance and the appearance of the ewes who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And what happens? Quite literally, a miracle. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. 
this can't be overstated that they are better appearance and fatter than the other group uh, in, a, in a matter of 10 days where they have taken calories out of their diet because the king's table was a calorically enhanced uh, table, especially with the wine offering. You might be able to switch over to vegetables and lose some weight in 10 days, but you're not going to gain weight in 10 days and certainly not significant weight such that you surpass the people who are eating the meat and the wine and all the rest. And yet that is exactly, that is exactly what happened. The, the Lord worked and he would continue to work. It says for the third time that God gave. So the God gave Jehoiakim, the, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Babylon, uh, king of Babylon. Verse 2, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. Verse 9, and then in 17, God gave these youths learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. He gave them intellectual superpowers. Certainly they were studying and putting their hand to the plow, but he caused them to excel in their studies. And notice he notice Daniel does not draw the line here and said, we will not learn these things. Apparently there's a way to learn these things, but not lose your identity in so doing. Apparently you can excel in incredible amounts of knowledge about things that are even false and not lose your identity in so doing because you know who you are, who you belong to. There's a way to do it where you lose your identity. There's a way to do it where you keep your identity. Talk about that later. He gives them these incredible gifts, and he gives Daniel an extra ability, the, the ability to understand visions and dreams, which of course will play prominently later in the book. And so at the three years of end of three years of vegetarian study here, they are presented before the king. The end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom. What a glorious reversal. Youths, youths, exiled from Judah. In the span of one chapter, it's presented this way intentionally, exalted to the highest place, standing in the presence of the king who took them captive, and wiser than all of the wise men in Babylonia. The chapter does not end until one more very important detail that is not a throwaway. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus? Cyrus the Persian from a totally different dynasty? Yes, yes. You know when Cyrus comes to power? 537. 537, Daniel was taken into exile as a teen in 605. He's still around in 537. The picture given here is this kingdom already from the first chapter, spoiler alert, this kingdom will not continue, but Daniel will. Daniel will. In fact, he will continue into his 80s. 
his 80s. Everything around him will change, but the one who holds his future will not. And that is an important theme in the book of Daniel. So what will happen now that Daniel and his buddies have graduated with honors? How will they steward their intellectual superpowers? How will Daniel utilize his dreams? How will they influence? You have to come back next week to hear the next chapter of the story. But for now, I want to take, I want to draw, draw a few applications here based on one of our responsible Old Testament application principles. And that is, what does this text teach us about how the world that opposes God attempts to shape those who have found their redemption in God through Christ? What does this text teach us about the world, which has not changed in terms of its opposition to God? How does it attempt to shape those who have found redemption in God through Christ? And as an outline, I just... I'm spoiled for options in such an application, but I'm just going to take the Babylonian ministry philosophy and ask, how do we sing Zion's songs in Babylon? First, isolation. Isolation. Christians in isolation are the easiest to mold into the shape of the world. In multiple ways, Daniel chapter 1 talks about their intellect and their learning, so I'm going to briefly talk about that. Intellectual isolation. The truth is that for multiple reasons, some may be better than others, but none of them are still good, many people love learning in isolation about the world, about politics, about the Bible, whatever. And these are often the people who most hate getting into discussions with people who really know the whole landscape of an issue because they're very good at getting through their script. And then when someone goes one more step, they're rendered speechless and they feel like they have to be on the defensive in order to avoid some kind of embarrassment or feeling humiliated or something. But when you learn everything in isolation... From behind a book or a computer screen, there's no worry about ever being wrong in front of somebody else. You can be wrong deep down in your heart. And you can be corrected in the silence of your living room or your study or whatever the case may be. There's no humility required. Whereas learning with other people, you can be prepared to be wrong a lot. And then, at the end, so much more knowledgeable of the actual issues as a result. Far more knowledgeable. And by the way, I would say that this is one of the... Not that this is, this, that's one of the primary benefits of, of people who are wanting to go into pastoral ministry going to seminary. Because anyone can buy books off Amazon and read them and watch debates and listen to podcasts. Oh, but in seminary, you have to sit down there and hash out these views with people. And you find out sometimes, oh, I, that's not even what they believed. Oh, wow. I can't answer that question. And you get caught on the spot. And either you will continue to run your mouth to try to not sound like you're wrong, or you will say, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to humbly learn. And I certainly did a lot of humble learning at seminary myself. I was reminded by a man last year, I, I said, man, do you, do you, when, you're, when you're trying to sort through these issues that pertain to worldview and Christ and culture and all the rest of it, you know, do you read and listen to really top-notch material kind of for the view that you like and then kind of read garbage, trash articles 
for the just so you can have the barest understanding of whatever it is that you don't, just so you can kind of say you're familiar. He said, I don't have time to read all that trash. Fair enough. But when you speak about it, it's pretty obvious that you didn't have time to read any of that too. Because their understanding of the spectrum is so small and your world of who counts as faithful even starts to collapse. In addition to reading widely, listening widely, do you have any flesh and blood Christians that you talk about these things with who, and, and, and who are sharp? Or do you not want to come with your made up my mind view because you're afraid they might come with their made up my mind view and it'll just become some kind of awkward you know, one person announces their view, the other person announces their view, and then you just kind of pass the cheese dip and salsa and move on to the next topic. Or is there is there someone who can challenge you, someone can, you can actually think through? So here's a question. Instead of asking, what can I learn? Maybe we should start with, with whom can I learn? With whom can I learn? I've always found that the best way to learn is with other people who can say, actually, what you just said isn't right. Oh. It's the fast track. It, it requires humility, but is a much better way to learn. Let me just mention that isolation from God's people accomplishes the same thing in our holiness. When we aren't known by anyone, when we just kind of keep everything between us and God in the quiet of our heart, no one else has to know. We can interpret the Bible however we want, find some strange preacher online who preached this text and applied it this way. So, you know, people, reasonable people can disagree about it. So don't bust me over this, you know, and then just kind of live our own life in isolation. And perhaps the most devious part about isolation is the people who dwell morally and intellectually in isolation often feel the most grounded, but they actually are. They feel like they have a knockdown, drag out, grounded this and that, when really you start peeling the unknown. In many cases, it ends up not being the case. That's first, isolation. We want to reject isolation. Second, we want to think about indoctrination. Everyone is being indoctrinated by someone or something. Everyone. Indoctrination itself is not bad, unless you understand it as something like brainwashing, which I guess sometimes it is. But I make no apologies for indoctrinating my children, for example, into the Christian worldview. I'm not apologetic about that at all. And when I say I'm indoctrinating them, I don't mean I'm brainwashing them. I'm teaching them the truth about life. I'm teaching truth about God and His world. Because my children are going to learn that from me. They're going to be indoctrinated by me or they're going to be indoctrinated by the world. There's two principles here for thinking about learning Doctrine, which is just indoctrination. The first is the kinds of material you spend most of you spend the most time exposing yourself to will exercise the most influence on your thoughts and desires, and even downstream your 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 thoughts and your feelings. Whatever you imbibe in media, whatever you spend your time just putting your head in and really caring about, it will affect you, even if you don't know it's affecting you. Guaranteed. It is an inescapable influence. And that's because, closely related, number two, more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. Indoctrination doesn't happen overnight, does it? Indoctrination is a slow drift. And in the best ways, a slow drift towards something good. But nevertheless, it's a slow drift, and oftentimes it's away from something good. It's observing models, hearing certain language, 
watching certain examples, watching people's reactions, making decisions about whose opinions and whose reactions matter and putting certain value judgments on those. And it could all be so, so subtle. You find yourself hanging around people. I've talked to multiple people in the last month. I've found myself hanging around people who... Uh, who, who, who use a ton of bad language or always use, or have a, a, a people at work that just have filthy mouths and tell these nasty jokes. And I, I feel my flesh getting pulled into that. Wanting to cut up in the office and it ends up, well, I don't think I should be doing that. But it's so subtle. The world presses in. And so let me just ask you, are you ensuring to the best of your ability that you are not being indoctrinated by things, even good things in some cases, that are not centered around Christ and the mission? Even good things. You're making sure, if you have children, that the truths of the gospel are being ingrained from them as, at an early age as possible. Because competitors for indoctrination are coming. They are coming. The only question is how you will prepare your children for the world. And listen, it doesn't matter whether, I'm not, this isn't a public school, homeschool thing. Everyone's going to go into the world at some point. The only question is how you are going to introduce them to the world. Do so wisely. What about softening? Softening happens in our context generally when we find ourselves with money or niceties that contrast with what we formerly had. That's when the softening happens. Nothing in itself about getting more money is wrong, but there is a reason the New Testament talks so much about the dangers of money being the root of all kinds of evil. For example, it softens us and it calls to our flesh. Here's what it says. It says, relax. You've put in your time. You've been on the grind, man. You've been grinding. Now you got a little extra. Just, you know, kind of loosen up a little bit. Enjoy some other things. Enjoy these things. Maybe here's this hobby that's too expensive for you to get. But now here's this other thing that could come distract you from what actually you need to be focusing on. Oh, you have money. Here's a whole new world you can access and play in. You've earned it. Relax. Forget these hard purposes. Enjoy yourself. And all of our, a sudden our minds are seduced by a deadly song. Here's the song. It's been a bestseller since Genesis 3. It's called More and Ease. That's it. It's the greatest hit of sin. More. I want more stuff. Ease. I want an easier life. More and ease. We're seduced by this siren song, more and ease. It's on repeat in our culture, more and ease, more and ease. And regardless of where you're at financially, this can happen. You say, well, I don't, I get to duck this one, Pastor, because I only make so much money. No, you don't. Because remember, more is more no matter how much you have. When does the billionaire stop? What's their number? More. What does the same person say who's... On the total opposite end of the spectrum? Oh, just a little bit more. I just want to be comfortable. Anything wrong with being comfortable? No. No, no, no. Not in itself. But if it pulls your heart, it does. If your desire for comfort masters your heart, you're all of a sudden being softened and being seduced away from what ultimately matters if you're chasing 
finances in that way. Finally, redefinition. Everybody wants to be somebody. Everyone wants to put a new name on themselves. God, Christ has stamped us with a name. Okay, fair enough. But guess what? It's like everyone has that. I want there to be something that sets me apart in one way or another. We want to stamp ourselves with a new identity, and it's a comparative identity. It doesn't say, am I in Christ? Am I faithful? Am I laboring well? It says, how do I stack up to the field? That's what comparative identity is. How do I stack up to the field? How do I st- when I look at moms, am I a good mom, you might say? What about dads? Do I, how do I stack up to dads? What about a breadwinner? Am I, am I bringing home the bacon? Is, am I like strong or like medium strong? Where do I fit in when I look out to the field? Do I compare favorably? What about my intellect? How do I stack up? Am I the smartest person in the room? Okay, maybe, but am I at least like one of them? I want to know the scale and I want to know where I am on it. It's a comparative identity. It's not Ashpanaz giving us a new identity. It's us saying, oh, I wish I could have a little bit different name in this context, like the smartest person in the room or the mom who's doing this, that, and all the rest and getting it done or whoever, the guy who's bringing home high six-figure salary. And oftentimes, we don't even care what it is. We'll just keep going to the next thing until we can at least stop on something to cling to and say, at least I compare favorably in this way. Just find some little piece of meaning and some kind of comparative evaluation to kind of sit on and go, okay, well, at least I can hold on to this. At least this sets me apart. Even though this is some totally meaningless thing, at least I am excel past these people in this. Ed Welch sums it up perfectly. Listen to what he says here as we close. We can tell when we have failed, he says. You know people who do it better. Excuse excuse me. We know people who do it better than we do, are more attractive than we are, seem to have more intimate relationships, better jobs, and so on. It is as if we are born with an innate ability to pull the world on hundreds of different measures And on the ones most important to us, we rate average or worse. We fear that we are ordinary. Are there pockets of your identity or maybe large chunks that have been redefined by Babylon or even parts of the church who have adopted a Babylonian grading scale? If so, where do you need to repent and believe the gospel and embrace the only identity that actually gives stability and fulfillment in this life. So may God give us grace as we continue in this series to hold fast to the one who holds us fast as we see what it looks like to sing Zion's songs in a foreign land together. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your steadfast love. We are thankful for promises that guarantee we will stand. We praise you because your kingdom is unshakable. We ask for your forgiveness and repent of our sins because we have rebelled. We thank you for Christ. The king who brings the kingdom that conquers all the kingdoms, even here in the book of Daniel. That we are seated in the heavenly realms with him. That we have a new identity. 
Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we interact with the world and we specifically think about isolation. We think about indoctrination, softening, redefinition. And would you help guard us against an all-or-nothing mentality that helps us easily duck some of these questions so that even if there is the smallest part of our heart clinging to something that we shouldn't, that you would bring us to a point of conviction for the sake of holiness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.